One of the things that I reiterate through the shadowing training and through the strategies that I teach to change this phenomenon is that the person doing the most talking is doing the most learning. And so we need to make sure that students are doing the most talking, the heavy lifting, and that we're gradually, gradually releasing talk to our students. It's not that the teacher shouldn't talk, but we have to make sure a student can only listen for as old as they are. And even that, I usually, I use the 15 minute rule. So I will only talk for about 15 minutes before I have even adult learners do something, right, with what I have just said so that they're making personal meaning. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How can shadowing EL students help educators, schools, and districts improve their instruction and outcomes? What are some ways we can link quantitative data from assessments with qualitative data gathered while shadowing students? What are the protocols that teachers should use when shadowing students, and what action steps should be taken after the experience? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Ivania Soto. Dr. Soto is a professor of education at Whittier College in California, where she specializes in second language acquisition, systemic reform for English language learners, and urban education. She began her career in the Los Angeles Unified School District, where she taught English and English language development to a population made up of 99.9% Latinos, who either were or had been English language learners. Before becoming a professor, Dr. Soto also served LAUSD as a literacy coach and district office administrator. She has presented on literacy and language topics at various conferences, including the National Association for Bilingual Education, or NABE, the California Association of Bilingual uh, Education, which is CABE, the American Educational Research Association, and the National Urban Education Conference. As a consultant, Dr. Soto has worked with Stanford University's School Redesign Network and WestEd, as well as a variety of districts and county offices in California, providing technical assistance for systemic reform for ELLs and Title III. Dr. Soto is also the co-author of The Literacy Gaps, Building Bridges for ELLs and SELs, as well as ELL Shadowing as a Catalyst for Change, and finally, From Spoken to Written Language with ELLs. These are all published by Corwin Press. Together, the books tell a story of how to systemically close achievement gaps with ELLs by increasing their oral language production in academic areas. Dr. Soto is executive director of the Institute for Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Teaching at Whittier College, whose mission it is to promote relevant research and develop academic resources for ELLs and standard English learners via linguistically and culturally responsive teaching practices. Before we dive into the episode, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by visiting our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. There you can leave comments about this episode and others as well. You can also engage in a variety of other resources like our Whiteboard Wednesday video series and newsletters and blogs. 
Finally, please consider rating the podcast or leaving us a review. You can do that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. Here's our conversation with Dr. Ivania Soto. Ivania Soto, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. This is a topic that uh, that is near and dear to my heart because it's something that uh, that I actually did as a teacher in this really sort of simple tool helped me empathize with my students and therefore become um, a better teacher. So I, I want to start this conversation by, by saying that, um, you know, th- truly this was probably one of the most valuable pieces of PD experiences that I had as a teacher. Um, so I'm excited to dig in. But could you start by telling us why you think shadowing an EL student in particular is such an effective practice? I mean, for me, it was just more traditional students. But what makes this such an effective practice for EL students? Um, well, in, in my experience uh, with schools and districts, uh, right, oftentimes the needs of English learners are are not met. Um, uh, unfortunately, due to you know either teacher training or not enough teacher training um, in service or pre-service, the needs of English learners, right? There's usually a gap in achievements, which is linked to um, right teacher preparation in this area. And so uh, going into classrooms, right, taking time to, to really take a look at the linguistic and cultural needs of an English learner specifically uh, sensitizes teachers uh, to the needs of English learners specifically. And so it really creates an urgency for change and a sense of empathy. Yeah, I like that you use the word sensitizes. That that really resonates with me. You know, you can you can do lots of research, you can look at research, you can even take classes, but until you kind of see it happening face to face and sort of in in the moment, um, it's hard to kind of sensitize people. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And then you know, you also mentioned the understanding the culture. And then another thing that you mentioned is this, this teacher preparation thing. Um, do you think that 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 shadowing is kind of the the like impetus for change to add more teacher preparation for English learners, or do you think it can even substitute it? No, it's, it's the impetus. Something has to happen after shadowing. Shadowing is a right. A one that one time experience, although you can also shadow for progress monitoring after professional development has been given over time, but really shadowing right creates the urgency for change. And then school systems, and or right, teacher education programs have to have a plan after shadowing. Um, so the shadowing book, for example, um, I lay out three academic language development research-based strategies that teachers can really work on and perfect to create more academic oral language in the classroom setting. Um, so some of the research, um, this was Pre-Common Core uh, work by Diane August, less than 2% of an English learner's school day is spent in academic oral language production. Mm. Um, as I'm going into classrooms now um, and, you know, systems over time, I'm seeing about 5 to 10%, um, which is a little bit better than, right, less than 2 Yep. But if, if we know that language is acquired through lots of practice, then, right, even 5 to 10% isn't enough. And we really have to equip teachers 
right, to do this work um, with the strategies and the practice, we tend to give teachers a whole lot at once, 50 strategies and perfect them in the next month, right? Yeah, that sounds familiar, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and so that kind of professional development usually doesn't create change or, or impact student achievement. And so really helping teachers with three foundational strategies that eventually they can work on uh, or they can build upon um, will really right, make them comfortable um, in the classroom setting with their English learners and then also create the scaffolds that, that English learners need to produce more, more academic discourse. Great. So yeah, so that that shadowing experience sort of sensitizes uh, the the teachers, creates that empathy, and then there needs to be a structure in place um, afterwards. Let's actually go back a little bit and talk about beforehand. I mean, so you know, I, I'm sure it's valuable, and it was valuable for me just to kind of walk around with a student for the day and kind of get an idea of what they were going through—the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. But what 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 is it? What needs to be done before the actual shadowing occurs? I recommend right, uh, professional development at, uh, around shadowing and or reading the book about how to use the protocol. So typically the shadowing series is a three-day series. And the first day is all about the academic language development needs of English learners, who our English learners are, um, and then working through how to use the actual tool when we go into the classroom setting. Um, again, right, the book also lays out step by step how, right, how to shadow a student, how to use the tool. Systems, so when I have district-wide or school-wide shadowing experiences, uh, systems will need to identify the English learners that they're going to shadow. So if we have, let's say, 50 teachers who are going to shadow at a variety of levels, elementary, middle, and high school, then we would want each of those participants to have one student that they would shadow and have their, what I call, it's an EL profile that we put together, which has achievement data on it. Um, has a picture of the student so that we can identify the student when we go into the classroom. Um, and what we really do through the observation is we triangulate, right, the data. We take a look at how what happens every day for an English learner leads to the achievement results, right, that we oftentimes see. Yeah, and you know, those two, I was just thinking, those two things at many, many points can seem sort of disconnected. I mean, like for me, and, and maybe this is just me, but like, I, I think it's so important to marry those two things, the data and the shadowing experience, because they just seem to be sort of very siloed from one another. Um, and so, you know, you're saying that we need to bring those, triangulate those is what you said to kind of paint a better picture of who the students are that we work with. Talk more about the, um, you know, the, the importance of marrying those two together and how we can kind of break down those silos of one, how one existing kind of without um, thinking about the other. Yeah. So really taking a look at, right, quantitative data and qualitative data, the qualitative data being going into the classrooms, observing, right, taking down information at every five-minute interval, which is what the shadowing experience is. But what I have folks do before we even go into the classroom is through the, the profile, we take a look at the assets, right? What are the strengths? We all want to be viewed from an asset base. So we mm -hmm. take a look at what are the strengths that 
that your English learner that you're going to shadow that they are bringing to the table. And then I have uh, districts or schools uh, with the profile give us three years worth of data to take a look at, you know, achievement over time. So where has a student, right, where is the student strongest? And then where is the student struggling? So um, the language assessment in California, um, it gives us data around listening, speaking, reading, and writing, right, for an English learner. Mm -hmm. And so we take a look at where, you know, is, is the student strongest in listening because the student is doing lots of listening, right, in the classroom setting and not enough speaking, perhaps that score is low. We also take a look at, right, the relationship between speaking and writing. So speaking is a scaffold for writing, which is another reason why our English learners need those opportunities to speak. It kind of becomes a mental outline for the writing process. And so we really, right, and we're not looking at, as teachers, we oftentimes, we're used to looking at 180 students at a time or 36, right, at the elementary level. Sure. And looking at all of their data. Yeah, I was going to say, especially when we're looking at that data at, the, at those, like, test results, we're looking at a lot at once. Sorry to interrupt, but I thought I'd bring, to emphasize no. that. Yeah. And so in this case, we're slowing everything down and we're looking at one English learner, right, at a time. We can then do this for all of our English learners is, is what I'm hoping, you know, eventually that we'll, we'll look at data, you know, in, in these ways um, for all of our students, right, um, especially our, our high needs students. Um, but so we take a look at these trends, right? These achievement trends over time, or was it, you know, did a student, um, you know, really do well in, in, as I mentioned, in one domain over another? Did they regress? And then we ask, you know, why might that have been that the student regressed? Did the assessment change? In California, we just had a, a switch from one language assessment to another. And then mm -hmm. when we go into the classroom, what I ask teachers to do as they shadow is to notice, right, those strengths and then notice those areas of need, right, as they're documenting um, information on the protocol sheet for speaking and listening. Yeah, so you're, I mean, clearly marrying those two things. And I mean, you talk about California, which is the context that you're coming from, but, you know, in, in, in every state, there's going to be some kind of uh, some kind of test or, or assessment that's going to have those domains in it as well, which are kind of easy to tell where the student is, at least from a quantitative perspective, um, on reading, writing, listening, or speaking. Then, like you said, slowing it down, as you said, and 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 really looking at one student at a time, um, I'm, I imagine must really sort of um, help connect and put the pieces together of a of a puzzle that can be kind of difficult to to solve or see if you're looking at, like you said, a hundred students at a time. And you've mentioned the um, the sort of some of the tools that you can use. One of which is the EL, EL shadowing protocol. Could you get into that a little bit more? And I know that this is this is you know, we're just kind of scraping the surface of this, but I'd love to give listeners an idea um, of what that is and how it's used. Sure. And then one other thing I want to piggyback around what you said in the last question uh, was that so so quantitative data is helpful, but it oftentimes doesn't give us the why of the phenomenon, right? right? We have to look a little more closely um, through observation or through student work samples, right? Um, to unpack the why. And so, 
so that's where right the shadowing piece alongside of the achievement data is so valuable. And so with the shadowing protocol, um, we have demographic information at the top that gets transferred from the English learner profile that had the achievement results uh, so that we know who we're shadowing, what overall uh, language proficiency level the student is at, um, right? Just, just the basic information, first name of the student, not, you know, not both uh, first and last for confidentiality reasons. Um, we then have several columns. We have a timestamp column. We have an activity column. We have a speaking, a listening, a no listening, and then a comments column. For the time, what we're doing is we're taking down, it's not a running record. We're taking down what we see first at the start of the five minute interval, as if we were taking a snapshot or a picture, right? Of, of what was happening for our English learner. So this is what is different about shadowing. So we're not observing the teacher. Um, typically we go into classrooms and, and right as administrators, that's what we're used to doing. Sure. Here it's right, we're shifting things and, and we're not observing every student, we're only observing the English learner that was assigned to us. And the teacher doesn't know. Who, which English learner is being shadowed. We do tell teachers we're going to come in, we're going to observe student engagement, um, but, you know, we don't want to change an authentic environment, and so so we kind of keep it at that. Instead of, if you tell them, I'm going to, you know, we're, I'm going to shadow Josue today, then the teacher might overly call on Josue, right? So at the start of every five-minute interval under activity, I write down, again, what I what I see first, right? What I see my English learner engaged in first. Whatever I see my English learner engaged in at the start of that five minute interval, and, and I write down under activity, that's what I'm gonna code under listening, speaking, or no listening. And so, for example, if my English learner um, happened to be engaged in a think-pair-share and he is speaking at the start of the five-minute interval using, let's say, a language stem, then I would uh, check off on, on, the, on the protocol sheet number two under speaking uh, because that's student-to-student -student engagement or student-to-student -student talking. Um, after the start of the five-minute interval, I'm going to take down any additional information under comments. And so, so uh, let's say if my student is speaking at the start of the five-minute interval and then is off task, I would only code speaking and then anything else, right, off-task behavior would not get coded. It would go under comments. And so this is where it's really important to yeah, read the book and or go through the, the shadowing professional development so that everybody's on the same page. There's yeah. uh, in a rate of reliability. Um, uh, but it's, it's pretty user friendly. I, we also have a shadowing app, which really helps participants um, with being accurate. Uh, it times them, it keeps them on target in terms of their coding. So there are a variety of options. Yeah, so we're looking primarily speak, sorry, we're no, primarily looking for academic speaking and academic listening. 
and students will typically be doing one or the other at the start of the five minute interval. They won't be doing both at the same time. We can't speak and listen at exactly the same time. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and it sounds like, and, and based on what you've said and what I've seen um, of this, you know, you're providing a very sort of structured um, protocol for people to use so that if there's a lot of people doing it this one, if there's a lot of people doing this at once in one school or one district, you're able to get sort of um, consistent data and information. But having that comment piece available also gives people some agency to kind of write down what they're seeing. Or it's kind of my experience and probably most people's experience with, with these kinds of shadowing things was a lot more loose. And it, it's not that it wasn't useful, but it wasn't geared toward a specific kind of um, end goal. Uh, and it wasn't geared, I think, to a, a large group of people, you know, doing this all at once to kind of make um, significant sort of hopefully school-based change, um, which I think is great. The other piece that I just wanted to take away from what you said is the idea that the teacher doesn't know uh, which student is being shadowed, I think that's so important because anybody who teaches um, will say to you that when somebody comes in to observe, you know, your behavior, I, I, don't, I just don't know how it doesn't change. Like when you're just kind of, you feel like you're a little bit on the hot seat, you're not really sure what to expect. Even if you're a veteran teacher, you try to just do your thing so you can get true feedback, but it, it's, it's just hard to, to not change that behavior. So I think that's that's a really smart way to approach it. Mm -hmm. And we really try to help teachers see that this is not evaluative. So my worst yeah. nightmare is that, right, this would be used for teacher evaluation. And so that's part of the reason why I wrote the book was I was starting to see, you know, in the field, some, some things happen that I, that was not intended. And so, um, and so I tried to, you know, it, it, through the shadowing training and in the book, you know, really try to lay out the, the purpose of shadowing and that it's for teachers, right, um, as well. Yeah, great. That's an impor important point of clarity, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. So we've kind of gone through what happens before. We've gone through a little bit of what happens during. Um, granted, we're, again, we're just scraping the surface here, and there's a lot more information in the book and in your resources that we'll talk about a little later. But I want to talk now about what happens after, because that might be the most kind of crucial um, piece if we're looking to make changes and to, and to make an impact on our students. What happens after teachers shadow students? How, I mean, how, how are participants um, debriefing, reflecting, and perhaps even initiating changes after the experience is over? Yeah, so we always take time after shadowing um, it's either done in the same day on day one where I teach them how to shadow in the morning. They shadow in late, the late morning to lunchtime. For, and, and I should say that I recommend at least two hours of shadowing in two different content areas. Um, because an English learner may right, really feel at home in a, a designated ELD classroom, English language development classroom. But you know, may not in a history classroom for whatever reason, right? Because the, the language is, you know, just richer or, or you know, more academic in nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, and perhaps there aren't as many scaffolds or whatever the, you know, whatever it may be. Or a, an English learner may shine in math, right? Um, so two different content areas. I have had some districts uh, shadow for an hour and a half 
but I would say that is the absolute minimum um, amount of time to really, you know, get a sense of a, a day in the life of an English learner, right? Um, and so after shadowing, what we do is we take a look, we go back to the data, uh, the, the profile, right, with the, the three years worth of achievement data, and then we take a look at our uh, the data now that we, the observational data that we've taken down the protocol sheet. And uh, I have either as a table group or in partners, uh, uh, just an overall reflection of, right, what connections did you see? Did you notice, right, in fact, that your English learner was not producing a whole lot of language, right? And uh, academic oral language or speaking. And so that was, right, um, one of the reasons why that domain score was lowest. So we do kind of an overall where we're connecting back to the achievement data, but then we also take a look at all of our protocol sheets. So for two hours, you would have um, back-to-back, you would have six uh, or three back-to-back um, protocol sheets, a total of six, and we would tally how many times did we see an English learner um, talk to a partner or talk to the teacher or listen to the teacher, right, for all of the codes? And there are seven codes. I didn't go through all of them, but there are seven codes for speaking. There are four codes uh, for listening. And then there are options for, there are times when students are not speaking, right, they're not required to speak, or they're reading or writing silently. Um, or there are times when students might be off task. So mm -hmm. we track those things as well. So we go through all of the speaking tallies, all of the listening tallies, and all of the no listening tallies. And then we, you know, add them up and put them on a large poster. Uh, if there are 50 participants, I would have several posters in the room and each person would put up their data. So that now we have an aggregate of these, let's say, 50 English learners that we just shadowed, right, as a group. And we would take a look at trends and patterns across, right, all of these students. Um, and again, this is where I typically see the 5 to 10%, right? Especially if, school, if districts or systems have done work around let's say, structures for academic talk, right, or Kagan strategies or whatever it may be. Um, so if they did some foundational work or professional development in these areas, I often see, right, uh, the range around 5 to 10 percent for academic oral language production. Um, the most typical pattern and theme that, that we I typically see across uh, these posters and I've been shadowing since 2003, and so um, until districts do right, deep work over time to change these, you know, this phenomenon, unfortunately, the pattern that, that we see is the teacher doing the most talking, which is, so for speaking, that's code number seven. For listening, it's the student is listening to the teacher, mm -hmm. so that's a two, code of a two. And then what we tend to see is, right, if it's around middle school, we see a lot more off-task behavior. Um, and at the elementary level, we'll see reading or writing silently for the third column. 
So if you look at this diet, right, what is, you know, if your schooling experience were, you know, seven, two, and one, a diet of the teacher talking to the whole class, I have to listen, right? Um, and then, and, and, and perhaps passively listening, right? Um, and then reading or writing silently. If that is my schooling experience day after day after day, I'm going to be unmotivated. I'm going to be, right, disengaged. Um, or I may just tune out, you know? And so one of the things that I reiterate through the shadowing training and through the strategies that I teach to change this phenomenon is that the person doing the most talking is, do, is doing the most learning. And so we need to make sure that, right, students are doing the most talking, the heavy lifting, and that we're gradually, gradually releasing talk to our students. Um, it's not that the teacher shouldn't talk, right? It, but we have to make sure a student can only listen for as old as they are. And even that, I usually, I use the 15 minute rule. So I will only talk for about 15 minutes before I have even adult learners um, do something, right, with what I have just said so that they're making personal meaning. Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely true. And it seems to come up in almost every episode that we do that that's kind of based on uh, instructional practice, the idea that, you know, there is this shift to kind of uh, relinquish the talking to the students, but that requires relinquishing control, which not every teacher is very good at, and not every district and sort of school leader um, supports. So it can be it can be difficult to do. But if we have students sort of talking and creating in ways that, uh, that are structured, um, we're, we're, we're going to see, uh, see more results from, from kind of, I guess, a more nutritious diet to use that, uh, that analogy that you use, which by the way, I think is great. A diet of, um, of just passively listening isn't going to yield the results that you want. I have two follow-up questions I'm curious about, um, to, to your response there. The first one is, I guess, kind of a, a simple one. And the second one might be a little bit more complicated. So the first one is, when you tally up that data at the end, which I think is great that they're getting immediate feedback on on big, you know, chart paper or across the room, and you're seeing that immediately. I'm curious if you if you ever see uh, disconnects between the data, like the domain scores that you see, and what's actually seen in classrooms, perhaps as a result of assessments not being as accurate as would like them to be. That's my first question. I have in terms of when students have been have not been classified accurately so so if they are a student who has who has just what we call reclassified as no longer english proficient mm -hmm. and so so the scores might have been you know higher than they were but then now they've reclassified and now they're in the mainstream classroom and so perhaps struggling a little bit more so nuances like that um or perhaps a student dually identified as an english learner and a student with special needs for the most part uh, we've seen a, a pretty close coupling and triangulation of the data um some some outliers, but we, yeah. we try to avoid that by being really cognizant of and, and intentional about who we shadow. So uh -huh. I usually ask 
district, you know, which which band are you or is or you know, are you are you struggling with the most um, in terms of English learner achievement? So do you have a lot of new arrivals? If so, let's shadow them. If you have a lot of long-term English learners, let's shadow them. If you have duly identified, we just I just had a shadowing project in San Bernardino County um, with duly identified because there was a high percentage of right duly, duly identified uh, English learners and students with special needs. And so in year two of our professional development, we shifted from just English learners to right ELs and uh, students with special needs. Next year in that same district, we're gonna shadow standard English learners um, and compare the data to, so standard English learners are students who speak non-standard forms of English like Chicano English or the African-American vernacular English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to compare the right, the data but across the two and try to, try to create that same urgency for change. But all that to say that typically that it, it's pretty consistent. Well, that's a good thing. I was just curious, you know, because sometimes you see, um, you know, trends that point to an assessment perhaps not being as accurate as it should, but that's that's actually a good thing. And you mentioned some of the nuances and, and the outliers, which would be expected, or some of the reasons that somebody may not perform well on speaking based on sort of where they are um, uh, along that kind of arc. So that was my, that was my first question. The second question, um, I guess I'll connect to a broader question. I'll kind of bring in my own um, experience here to, to, to frame this. I mean, when I First of all, I'll say like when I shadowed students, I didn't do it nearly as deeply as what you're talking about here. Um, it wasn't directed toward a specific population of students, so it was it was definitely different. But some of the most powerful learnings that I had were were really kind of simple. Like it was like, you know, I, I'm sitting in a very uncomfortable seat for a long time. I'm carrying tons of books and papers. Um, I can't keep track of all of the the different things that people are saying because I'm getting so much um, input and I'm not allowed to kind of get out, you know, give, give my own opinion or give output, speak more, as you mentioned. And so, you know, you framed a lot of that as when you sort of learn what a student is going through, um, and you see that more opportunities are given to speaking, you know, that there's been some more deeper work and intentional work gone on in the district. So the, the root of my question is, is the shadowing experience, does it provide typically the impetus for deeper work, as you explained it, that would then later allow teach students, excuse me, to, to speak more, to create more, to practice those skills more? Is that the impetus that's needed? And, is, and are there action steps that happen after typically with districts? Yes, yes. And my, right, from, from the outset, when I talk to districts, um, I really try to urge, right, that shadowing is not a panacea, the actual shadowing experience, right? It's, it's an eye-opening experience. It can help create that urgency for change, but there has to be a plan after shadowing. Um, and the other part of the reason why I wrote the shadowing book is that I was working with systems and we would, we would conduct the shadowing projects and then I would, you know, assist them with planning um, that didn't always, you know, take hold or happen. Um, there was, uh, there were times when there was an assumption that 
they knew where to go next. And in some cases, right, districts do know where to go next. They they know how to link or bring coherence to other initiatives, right, going on uh, within the district. But oftentimes, since this is a right, a particularly underserved group of students, schools or districts are really right asking for expertise and help around next steps. And so the next steps that I lay out in the shadowing book are the three academic language development strategies that teachers try on throughout the three-day training series. So there's typically at least one month in between each of the days so that teachers can go back to their classrooms and try on these strategies. And the three strategies are think pair share, and this is not your typical partner talk um, or the typical think pair share. It's think pair share, what I call on steroids where we require active listening and paraphrasing, um, and we require academic language uh, via sentence starters. Uh, so teachers learn that strategy on day one alongside of shadowing. They try it on between days one and two. They bring back student work samples from their English learners. We analyze the student work samples. We talk about what went well, what didn't. Let's what, what should we, how should we tweak the strategy so that it works better? Perhaps what did we forget, right, when we were implementing? Did we not intentionally pair our students? Was the classroom not set up for classroom talk? Um, so we strategize before we move on to the next strategy. The second strategy is the Freire model, which is a way to teach academic vocabulary. Um, we have a target word or concept. Um, we have examples that, that students bring forth, non-examples, a visual, and then they come up with their own definition. We know that English learners come to school with far fewer words um, than their uh, English counterparts. And so we want to teach many words at a time. Um, uh, and so all of the examples that emerge out of the examples quadrant of this graphic organizer um, are words that are also being taught alongside of the target word. And then the third strategy is reciprocal teaching. And so this is a little more sophisticated. Good readers, right, uh, know how to summarize, question, predict, and connect, which are the four reciprocal teaching strategies mm -hmm. that we, we teach teachers and students to use. Um, we also know that um, this assists right with literacy development, but also language development. We put students into small groups with English learners in the group, so they're heterogeneously grouped um, and intentionally grouped. And uh, we teach each of the four roles explicitly. Um, and so the three strategies were selected because they connect to the essential elements of academic language. Um, so they weren't, they're research-based, right, as well, but they're also, the, the four essential components of academic language are academic vocabulary, syntax, grammar, and then the register of language. So we're addressing those essential elements by, by you know, teaching teachers to use these three strategies. And then the, the hope and the desire is that moving forward, right, teachers, they typically plan lessons. We plan lessons together. 
um, before they leave. So they're ready to go with that strategy. Uh, they then try it on again. They bring back student work samples, right? So there's, there's a focus, a continued focus over time and around refining these strategies. In year two, we would add additional strategies um, that promote academic uh, oral language or academic language development. Yeah, and it sounds very intentional and structured, which it is. And I'm, and it's worth mentioning that the strategies, the three strategies that you mentioned to start with, are also strategies that are probably going to work for all students, not just English learners. So they can be used, um, which which I think is is crucially important. You know, I, I don't I don't escape one of these episodes without mentioning that you know good instruction for English learners is generally good instruction for all students, which is which is wonderful here as well. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned those three and that we talked about kind of the follow up. Again, there's so much here that uh, that we're not going to get to today, but I do I do want to wrap up um, this conversation before we get into some resources and and have people learn more about uh, your book and and the work that you're doing. There was a quote from an article that you wrote that I thought was really quite powerful, and it kind of gets to the root of all this. And it's it's um, it goes like this: You said, once you've experienced a day in the academic life of an English learner, it is truly difficult. Uh, it is truly difficult to turn away and not change practice. Um, I definitely feel that way about my experience with, with more mainstream students. I'm curious if you think leaving the experience with empathy for ELs is even more powerful um, than just experiencing it with just traditional students. I think I know the answer to that question. So I'm more concerned with, with kind of wrapping this up with why. Yeah. Uh, well, they're, they're one of the most right, vulnerable um, students in, in our systems. Um, typically they're underachieving, right? Um, and so getting down to the root and really, uh, what I, the way that I like to frame a shadowing training for teachers is today you are an educational researcher collecting data, right? Uh, we're, we're turning, we're slowing everything down and we're not focusing on, right, the 180, the 36. We're focusing on that one child, that one student a day in the life, right, of, of that English learner. What a breath of and fresh air for most teachers, too, I bet. Yeah, yeah, because, it's, I mean, there's, you know, teaching is, is difficult, right? And juggling, right, 36 students um, and all of their needs is, uh, can be difficult. And so... Teachers will, will rise to the level of their expectations is, you know, when, when they when they are provided with, right, the appropriate training and time and support, right? And so, um, so I have found that it really, right, English learner shadowing in particular. Uh, one of the things, so connecting back to one of the things that you said, so the, the three strategies are good for all students. But our English learners absolutely need those three strategies to survive mm -hmm. in school, right? Mm -hmm. And so similarly with English learner shadowing, putting them, right, um, at the forefront, right, reminding us that, I, you know, I'm in teacher education at Whittier College. I train pre-service teachers. They get one course in California. Uh, teachers get one course on meeting the needs of English learners. Um, now, each other, you know, all of all of the courses are supposed to address English learners to a particular extent. We're asking teachers to, right, master, right, 
this huge need, uh, the linguistic and cultural need of, of students in the field with, you know, through one course. And so that's where the ongoing professional development over time, um, right, can really assist with, with closing opportunity gaps, right, and achievement gaps uh, with our English learners. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, the, and the one course that's offered in California, um, unfortunately, is more than, than is offered in other places um, at this point as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that, but the, the ongoing PD is crucially important, no, ma- no matter how many courses there are. I mean, you, things change and demographics shift and you have to keep yourself up to, to practice. And this is a great way to do it. Okay. So, um, as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you a question that I like to ask everybody who comes on to the, to the podcast. And that is, um, if there's a book or resource that has influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with us. So I was an English major in, uh, as an undergrad and I, uh, specialized in Southern literature. Um, and so for me, I'm kind of taking a non-education approach, um, at, at this point, but, um, so just, taking a look and linking the experiences, the, the African-American experience with the, um, the experience of Latinos or Latinx um, folks in the United States has really been um, part of my life's work, starting with, I was an English teacher in middle school. And I taught in a, in a, in a, in a school that was actually the second largest middle school in the country at the time, 3,600 kids. Um, 99.9% Latino, um, students, most of my students either had been English learners or were English learners at the time and really trying to, you know, have them see an experience that was like theirs, right, outside of their community and how similar we are, right? Um, and so, so for me, you know, Faulkner and Tony Morrison and my Angelou right? Um, after I, I typically what I would do in my class, my middle school classroom was start with um, Chicano literature, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or culturally relevant pieces uh, that connected to their personal experience, but then linking that to right the African American experience, because oftentimes right these two groups can be pitted against each other, and so. Mm-hmm. I found that, that, you know, that has been, it, it started in my classroom. And then the first book that I wrote was The Literacy Gap, where we tried to take a look at the, the similarity and needs between English learners and standard English learners. And I kind of talked a little bit about, about um, who standard English learners are previously. And so, so that teachers can see, right, that, as you suggested, the, the strategies that we use in the classroom setting can work for, for both of these groups because there are linguistic similarities, right? And cultural similarities um, and needs. And so, so that's kind of, I didn't definitely, you know, I could, in education, we dealt with work, other people's children, you know, but as an English major, um, the right Southern, uh, Southern literature really and the and African-American literature really impacted me. 
That's great. That's that's a totally fair answer, and it's a unique one, which I appreciate as well. You know, we hear a lot about the educate the great education books, and that's that's wonderful. But you know, you mentioned Faulkner and Angelou, and and making that connection between um, Southern and African American literature, and 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 uh, and the Chicano literature as well, which I had the privilege of having some time to study when I was an undergrad as well, um, is great. I think we can take a lot from that. But shifting over to your work, I do want people to know how they can find your work, including uh, your books, and just kind of find out more about what you're doing. Where can people go to, to find those and to learn more about, uh, about the work that you're doing? So two ways. They can go to my publisher is Corwin. And so uh, it's, they can go to the Corwin website, and it's uh, corwin.com slash Ivania. Uh, hyphen Soto, um, I V A N N I A uh, hyphen S O T O, um, and then they can also personally email me um, at Ivania I V A N N I A at G O C A B E dot org. And I should say, so I'm a, I'm a professor at Whittier College. I'm on leave working on a grant for the California Association for Bilingual Education um, last year and then this year. So that's the email, uh, the most recent email that you can contact me at. Well, that's great. And Kaveh is doing great things. I was at the conference in Long Beach. Um, uh, I guess that was in the, was that in the spring now, um, which was, which was wonderful. Um, and that's great. And so we will link to both of those, uh, to both um, your email and to the Corn website as well. If people want to learn more. Um, I would highly recommend taking a look at those resources and those books. That's kind of what informed me and some of the questions that, that, that I came up with for today. Obviously, we just scraped the surface, but Ivania, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for, um, for really expanding my knowledge and I'm sure um, that of our listeners as well. Beyond shadowing is just kind of a day to sort of build empathy and understand what students are going through to something that's really connecting data, connecting research, and probably most importantly, impacting um, and affecting change um, in a real positive um, uh, and concrete way. So really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.